0: So today I'm joined by Dr. Pawel Figurski, uh, Assistant Professor at the Polish Academy of Sciences and a Visiting Scholar at the University of Cambridge. Um, Pawel uh, has got a forthcoming book on political liturgies in the high Middle Ages, edited with Peter Bitterbeer and uh, Johanna Dale. And has published quite a lot about liturgy and, and, and kingship um, and recently got married. Congratulations on that. And welcome to the podcast, Pawel.
1: Thank you very much, Charles, for having me. Thank you very much for your kind introduction.
0: Not at all. Um, so just to start things off, from the bubble, you work predominantly, as I just said, really on kings and liturgy um, in the Latin West. What's going on there in the 11th century? What role does liturgy play in kingship, I guess, in in, in the 11th century? Big question. Uh,
1: indeed, a very big and broad question already, a path already travelled by many historians. Ernst Kantorovich, even one of the greatest um, historians of the past century in terms of political theory, kingship, and liturgy. Uh, He coined the term uh, liturgical kingship to describe uh, the character of political power precisely in the uh, Ottonian and Salian period, which is like uh, late uh, late 10th and 11th uh, century. And he um, believed that uh, liturgy actually was this cultural marker that set the theory about kingship that also influenced real politics, uh, real politik. Um, so basically, we see liturgy as highly influential in the uh, deliberations on the role of kingship in 10th, 11th century leading up to the investiture uh, contest. We also have another uh, labels, uh, for example, coined by Han- Henry Meyer Harting, who believed that the uh, Ottonian period is the age of liturgy. So basically, a liturgy as a realm of uh, social interactions, uh, as a realm of, uh, of course, uh, communicating with God was um, uh, was highly influential on uh, on political theory, on political practice as well. And we have uh, a lot of um, famous uh, examples of this of this uh, of this uh, interchange. But what is interesting to me is this uh, questioning of um, of the so-called royal sacrality or this liturgical kingship, as already present in the Kantorovich narrative, as also present in other works of other scholars who believe that liturgy is kind of fading away with the uh, progress of the 11th century and especially in the 12th century and that uh, the cultural marker uh, and that the cultural marker uh, become um, law and uh, and uh, scholastic theology rather than liturgy and this is something that actually, Uh, based on my research is not uh, entirely accurate Um, when i try to to work on uh, royal invocations of rulers in the most important uh, and most uh, often practiced uh, liturgy of the eucharist we can see that investiture contest does not really uh, does not really change the picture what is striking, even we have more and more manuscripts containing the specific royal invocation in the Eucharistic liturgy uh, during the investiture contest, also in places that would be expect- expected not to have it. For example,
0: yeah, let me just go back a, a, a step from here, Bob. So. There's this narrative then by Kantorovich and others which say that kings are marked out in the early Middle Ages, I guess, as holy figures through their, their sacred kingship. And that liturgy, you know, it's all about liturgy makes them into sacred figures and that that shifts, as you said, into a kind of... Um, into law, so in other words, they are made special by 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 being at the top of the legal um, uh, hierarchy. Um, but you're saying okay, it's not that clear-cut, and I guess part of this problem is you're looking at Eucharist, and um, so lots of lots of people have looked at kind of coronation rituals. But it sounds like you are not just looking at coronation rituals; you're looking at how liturgy plays out, and other aspects. Is that is that right?
1: Uh, exactly. If I manage to finish the book uh, that I'm still working on for the last like seven years, uh, I will uh, be able to grasp all the liturgical phenomena. So, not only the mostly studied coronation ordinance, uh, as you mentioned but also the liturgies that were kind of uh, left over from from the picture. So obviously we have uh, good research on Laudes Regie. This is again Kantorovich. We have some research on votive masses by Garib We have uh, research on um, confraternities uh, made by um, Wagner, uh, Wolfgang Eric Wagner, and uh, plenty of other studies, but somehow For me, surprisingly, the the Eucharist was kind of uh, left over, especially the most um, important text for celebrating the Eucharist, which is the Roman Canon of the Mass, uh, which obviously has been studied by liturgies, by theologians, especially those who were preparing the revision of the liturgy in the Catholic Church after the Second Vatican Council. Mm. But the historians, hardcore historians, especially polit- of the political history, kind of uh, left over this text. There, there are some studies uh, from the beginning of the 20th century with Tellenbach, Ludwig Biel, uh, that are uh, also er- even earlier on by Ebna. But uh, in the recent decades, not really, uh, not really much has been done on it. Garibzanov touched on it in his book on symbolic language of uh, authority. But uh, all in all, it's still kind of a terra incognita, which I'm trying to explore and show that uh, this uh, practice of Eucharist, especially its political significance, was very influential for not only political
0: theory, but also practice. Uh, It sounds fascinating, because obviously the The Eucharist is um, the the central christian ritual in 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 I mean, uh, fundamentally so it's it's kind of odd that hasn't been yeah this has been um not forgotten but but certainly marginalized in in the study of 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 kingship and, and liturgy so i'm pleased that yes this is you're, you're going to um explore this this terror incognita um can i just bring us back to 11th century briefly because my second question i mean say like this used to be as you said at the beginning framed as a part of the transition from liturgical to legal kingship i guess um and you're not so sure about that what about the absence? Because it, it said, isn't it, that images of kings disappear from the from liturgical manuscripts, and that used to be thought to be evidence of this, kings have been kind of taken out of the sacred sphere um, you know, uh, uh, and as, as part of desacralization associated, as you said, with the investiture contest. I guess your focus on the Eucharist liturgy gets us away from that narrative.
1: Uh, I would like to move us a bit uh, away from this narrative. That's, that's true. So... Um, you're right that the most of the images of rulers are preserved in liturgical books uh, precisely in this period coined as liturgical kingship and afterwards we have some leftovers like the image of uh, henry the lion in the 12th century in his um, one of his uh, gospel books um, but it's true the the images are are uh, disappearing um, from from liturgical Books at least they are not present to such an extent as in the Ottonian and early Salian period. I'm trying to, I'm trying to to look into this uh, regular practice of the of the Eucharist uh, to uh, show the royal invocations um, during the Roman Canon of the Mass, which is the main Eucharistic uh, prayer in the Latin West in that period, and. Um, trying to utilize this argument, as you said, of the most uh, crucial Christian ritual to show that um, it's actually telling that we have or have not the royal invocation embedded in this text and what political uh, consequences this this could have uh, had for understanding political. So this art. is about
0: whether basically you pray for the king during the Eucharist and, and when you pray for the king. I guess, during. The and
1: Eucharist. actually, if one, if one could uh, stretch the interpretation, one could say that it's not even praying for the king in the canon of the mass, but one of the possible interpretations would be to say that it's praying with the king. And that's, uh, for me, this prayer in the Roman canon of the mass is very important and telling because it's, It allows to introduce an interpretation of royal office as a sacramentally ordained office. So this is the Carolingian feature of royal office as the ministerium, but it has some practical liturgical consequences in the Roman canon of the mass when they say, and it's one of the possible interpretations among many others, but offerimus una cum regenus. So the king receives the same position as the pope, as the bishop in union with, with whom the Eucharist is celebrated. Because uh, as, you, as you mentioned, praying for the king would not be very specific in Christianity. If we look into First Timothy, the letter uh, to Timothy, uh, we already see the uh, admonition to pray for all uh, for kings and all those in authority. So it's uh, very early on, the prayer for the rulers is practiced in Christianity. But here the novelty, the novelty that starts in late Carolingian period would be to present the image of a king with whom the Eucharist is celebrated. So he's receiving a position that kind of legitimized the mass, that uh, kind of... uh, also make him makes him omnipresent in his realm wherever the mass is celebrated and it shows him as the sacramentally ordained cleric similarly as the bishop or the bishop of rome the
0: pope and that continues into the 12th century exactly
1: exactly and uh, actually um, more So if we look uh, uh, statistically what is happening in the sacramentaries and missals in the, let's say, from the 9th until 13th century, we see a big shift with this royal invocation precisely in the 12th century. So in the 11th century, there are slightly more sacramentaries with the royal invocation than without it, but the 12th century is... Basically, the game changer in the 12th century. This invocation is present in uh, more and more uh, manuscripts.
0: This is a big challenge: the kind of narr- narratives of secularization of kingship, basically, in that and that. Yeah, actually, far different. from being taken out of the sacred sphere, the king is actually becoming almost a co celebrant of the mass.
1: Exactly, and this is something also that uh, is uh, puzzling for me, and that I have not expected when I started looking through the manuscripts. The possible there are though some attempts to kind of reconcile this um, liturgical uh, ritual, uh, ritual uh, liturgical tradition already established by the twelfth century, with their the reformed understanding of the royal office. So we have some commentaries, liturgical um, commentaries. Written by some figures also involved in the so called investiture contest, like Ivo of Chartres or Hildebert of Lavardin. And they argue that um, basically this is a simple intercession for the ruler. So basically, they opt for another interpretation that is kind of um, very uh, easy to reconcile with the ecclesiology they, they enforce. But when we look into the practice, or the times when the liturgical innovation, this very precise invocation of a king is introduced into sacramentaries, and it's happening in the late Carolingian period, we see that the understanding is different. So basically, the Gregorians, I know if intentionally or not, but they are changing the meaning or opting for one of the interpretation one of the possible interpretations of this ritual
0: so so yeah they're they're trying to reinterpret i guess and to yeah i mean that's fascinating it's 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 almost like it's contested at the time and what this means exactly Mm -hmm. i would say and we could talk about this more but we should move on i mean having just been speaking about liturgy um Um, It's obvious in your work, anyway, you've shown it raises all kinds of interesting questions, but I think it's still fair to say that it's neglected, as you said at the very beginning, by historians. I mean, you've mentioned many, many exceptions to that, but medieval historians do generally give it a bit of a wide berth. Um, Why do you think that is?
1: I would say one of the reasons could be the tradition of uh, education. Uh, Also, it depends on the countries and on the institutional history. So in Germany, for example, you have Kirchengeschichte, Kirchengeschichte, which is studied at the theological faculties, and simply Geschichte, which is studied in different institutions. So probably this has led in Germany to this division of labor between theologians interested with liturgy and historians who are not really interested in um, liturgical phenomena, even though, obviously, that there are, there is immense uh, liturgical scholarship. Uh, and in the recent decades, we should also not forget about many historians um, who studied history or just like simply medieval studies. And were really exploring exploring this realm, like uh, Isaac Hen, uh, Susan Boynton, Cecilia Gapochkins, uh, Sean Griffin, and many many other authors that are mentioned in the introduction to the book that you mentioned that is about to appear. So, I won't uh, list all those names, but uh, obviously Margot Fassler, Susan Rankin, and many many other scholars who uh, who already have noticed the importance in uh, of liturgy for studying medieval culture but it's true that uh, in the general curriculum of a historian uh, one does not open the missile when studying political culture uh, i i refer here to the, the quote of kantorevich of 1946 when he said that liturgy is one of the most important auxiliary sciences for studying uh, medieval political culture, and uh, we should not deal cheerfully with political culture without ever opening a missile. But I would say that uh, his saying uh, is still far from reality when we look um, how history is studied uh, or taught at the university level. Because not often the missile is utilised yeah. by historians.
0: This is a case, one of those many cases, I guess, where modern prejudices and, and ways of thinking are being projected back, maybe unconsciously or not, into yeah, into that distinction you mentioned, in gashikata and and just pure but, um That's fascinating. Well, we'll have to wait till the well, We look forward to reading the, the the introduction to the book you just mentioned, Pavel, which is you know forthcoming um, any 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 day now, right? Um, I want to turn. If, if if I may just onto a slightly different topic because we've been talking mostly about the Atonians and the Salians so these are the kind of kings it's the emperors of course of Germany or what's now Germany but but the the Reich and obviously you're Polish and I'm interested in that in that the focus of your work is predominantly it's wide ranging isn't it but it's focusing on the tolian Salians and not for example the Piast dynasty of Poland um and I, I mean is that unusual in in Poland do most Polish medievalists study the Piast or, or 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 not.
1: I would say it's changing with my generation, but uh, it, or maybe even a bit earlier. So basically, the problem with studying Pia's history is the appalling scarcity of sources. So basically, we don't have so many manuscripts. We don't have uh, so many even extant sources. Not talking about the manuscripts. So basically, when you want to say anything about Pia's Poland, especially its earlier history, you must look. Uh, look at those realms from where the culture was received, um, from where the manuscripts were coming, from where also the clerics were incoming. And this is and this is the empire. This is the Ottoman Empire. So basically, one of the way of studying Pias is to look at the Ottoman Empire because uh, it was uh, one of the most influential um, realms uh, for the early Pias. And uh, this way of doing Polish history in a comparative manner has already been established by Alexander Gestor, um, who was the teacher of my supervisor Roman Michałowski. So it's pretty long tradition. But it's true that the research is usually separated um, or was usually separated uh, that uh, polish historians were dealing with polish history trying to look at the Ottoman empire but not really going very uh, very far uh, on in in, in those um, uh, realms and there were ma- many reasons institutional also one does not have to forget that poland was a communist country with uh, limited resources, so we still kind of suffer because of this. Because our libraries are not really well equipped with books uh, that uh, are produced during uh, that were produced during the communist period. For example, we have way more uh, broad-ranging um, uh, collections before the war or in the last decades than during this period of communism. So basically, this uh, has also made an impact. Uh, So I would say, yes, looking at the transnational history is also a way to say something about local phenomena, especially if we suffer from lack of extant sources for the 10th, 11th century. And well, I'm fascinated
0: with this kind of tradition of, of doing just that, actually. That, that it. Yeah, going back into Polish historiography. Um, my last question then is just, uh, I ask this of everybody, Pavel, what, what what are you working on at the moment?
1: Uh, I'm trying to finish this book that I started a few years, uh, actually not so few years ago. So this is the first. monograph? This is the monograph. This is the monograph, uh, uh, monograph yeah, that yeah. I would like to finish. It would be on the political significance of Eucharist in, let's say, eight, in Europe, Latin West, uh, from 800 till 1200 so it's a pretty broad chronological range i'm trying still to to add additional chapters and uh, trying to show how uh, this overlooked uh, ritual of invoking rulers in the canon of the mass made an impact on political theory and political practice and the second project that i currently have is to work on Polish liturgical manuscripts. Um, I have found many undiscovered manuscripts over the pandemic, and this is maybe something that I could share with you. I have found the 12th century pontifical, probably from Central Europe, uh, unexplored entirely. Uh, it was like a story from Indiana Jones said, <laughs> with the with the pandemic on your behind your shoulders and also many other sources like um local calendars um, a missile unknown. so I'm trying to provide source cri- uh, source uh, criti- criticism studies um, based on those manuscripts also try to include those liturgical manuscripts into the political and social narrative, because uh, in this pontifical that I have found uh, in February 2020, we have ordeals, so a very important uh, facet for establishing justice um, in 12th century uh, Central Europe still. And we do have an emerging uh, liturgy of the Crusades, a phenomenon that also emerges in the 12th century Piast realms. So basically we see how liturgical sources reflect broader changes within the within the central Europe of the 12th century and I'm happy that uh, I was able to find this pontifical in this very peculiar uh, uh, manners.
0: Hey, that sounds it, it, that's really cool. quite exciting. Pavel. Well we, we look forward to um, seeing the, the the fruits of your research in print. Good luck with that. Thank you very much for um, joining me today. Pavel.
1: Thank you very much, Charles, for having me. And thank you for all those who have listened to this uh, podcast. Thank you for your uh, attention.